Hello and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 13. If you ask anybody in a company, so what about 3D printing? One says, well, it won't happen. There's various other technologies that are way better. And the other says, yeah, you know what? I will be uh, printing my liver if I need it on the corner of the street within 10 years. We really try to bring everybody to the same middle ground. That was Joop van der Sande for Eriks, Netherlands. He's also responsible for spearheading their 3D printing initiatives. Eriks is a specialized industrial service provider that has played a key role across a number of industries, providing technical components and optimizing parts production. They have over 7,500 employees across 300 locations within 22 countries globally. And from those sites, they serve top industrial brands in 22 separate fields. Once they really get to see it and feel the materials and see the applications, that's when they really start being excited and find a very interesting technology to think on new ideas. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. I'm Matt Griffin, and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing on their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within manufacturing and on the factory floor? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the lucky 13th episode of the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays, every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Its global team of more than 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing. Hi, my name is Job van der Zande. I'm working for Erics as the Manager of Engineering and Development for Erics the Netherlands. And as part of that capacity, I'm also responsible for spearheading the 3D printing initiatives. The team is the 3D printing team, and it is in the Netherlands, but we are a multinational company and we have the same department uh, around the world. So there's a ceiling and polymer department in the US, there's one in Germany, there's one in France, there's one in Belgium, etc. And these departments have different engineers engaged with 3D printing. In the end, we are a company that thinks back from the application perspective. So a customer has a problem and you need to find the best way to solve it. And that could be through 3D printing, but it could also be another manufacturing technology. How did you first encounter 3D printing and 3D printing materials? I was so intrigued by the technology that I bought my own FFF printer at home. That's roughly now four years ago because I really wanted to understand more about the technology. I'm an industry engineer as a background, but I never learned how to uh, draw technical drawings. So I started engaging with software using, for example, Fusion 360, which is a very low entry software kit to make uh, drawings and then uh, connect that to uh, Cura and to my Ultimaker. And all of a sudden uh, I had some physical parts that I produced myself. So it was a very engaging process and yeah. It grew on me when, for example, our barbecue wheels broke down. We repaired them and um, we made some jigs and fixtures around the house. Yeah, my wife uh, discovered Thingiverse, so she was downloading and printing a lot of things. Yeah, I was particularly um, interested in the technology itself, so in making physical parts. For me, learning how to get draw was was uh, the necessity. I never thought it was that easy and it turned out really well. And that's why I really pushed within Eric's to take it steps further than just prototyping. Were you already interested before Eric's? 
some of my friends were actually using the technology from an experimental uh, point of view. So uh, roughly five years ago, when I joined Eric's, I discovered that they were 3D printing already for a while. They have been doing so since early 2010, I think. And yeah, I got really intrigued. We used it a lot for uh, rapid prototyping. As you might know, uh, ceilings, so rubber parts are made through molding processes and making those molds actually takes a very long time. So 3D printing allowed us to go very rapidly through a process of um, thinking of a 3D uh, design, then prototyping it and being back to the customer within a few days with an actual almost functional prototype. And that really enabled us to, to be ahead of the, the competition, but also really to, yeah, to showcase our, our capabilities in how to make sure that these parts would be of high quality or how we could reduce the costs of the series. If you were to pull out the elements of AM that make the biggest difference in what you're doing today, what would you highlight? Definitely, it already helps a lot with prototyping. So we have some really good cases at our company where basically the 3D prototyping really saved the day from a commercial perspective, from a quality perspective, but also from a design perspective uh, where it allowed us to, to iterate on designs very quickly. The second thing we are really doing now and engaging in is chicks and fixtures. So we had a lot of ideas laying about, but we used to make them only with metal, which takes a lot of time, takes a lot of investment. And thanks to the FFF printing processes, we were able to basically tap into that potential that was laying about for improved output of processes, quality checks, safety tools, you name it. And it saved us a lot of money. And then uh, lastly, uh, yeah, we are now really engaging also with more advanced uh, type of structures, uh, internal structures or jigs and fixtures that have to have a very organic shape because of various reasons such as if you are in a very clean environment, you can't have any sharp edges because behind that you could have the growth of bacteria or dust might settle there. We have to rethink the shapes of our products in such a way that it's very easy to clean or that stays clean. How would you describe the field in which Eric's works? I mean, obviously, there are a lot of different roles. Mm -hmm. So Eric's is an industrial service provider, which basically means uh, if you're a company and you are an industry and it could be many different industries like semicon, aviation, could also be oil and gas, and you run into the problem of not having a certain spare part or needing to do a shutdown and needing all these parts to be replaced, then we provide these. We have a very big assortment of different parts, such as gaskets, hoses, seals, you name it. And yeah, these can be delivered to you through various different channels, but also in very different ways. So it could be uh, during a shutdown, we... Uh, do all the gaskets, but also you can order with us several dozens of O-rings if you need it. And could you define co-engineering? In our discussions when we were doing the lead up to this interview, I found this really interesting. So co-engineering for us is the process in which uh, a customer knows pretty well what they want, but you need to take some steps to make it producible, for example. So they will come with a drawing uh, and they'll say, this is how it should look. This is how strong it should be. And these are the critical variables in there where dimensions really matter. And then we'll go and see, okay, can this be produced? How can we improve it? But also co-engineering can go as far as that we are basically asked to make an entire concept. So we would be tasked with making a vibration damper without any design in place or perhaps only the counterpart so that you know something about the environment it's used in. 
Yes, and these are really the, the most interesting projects, of course, where you have a blank sheet and you can really tackle the problem head on uh, with all the knowledge that you have. If customers ask you, can you make a part? Of course, that, yeah, you can make it. But most of the time, the question also is, okay, so how long will it survive? Will it be applicable to do this or that? Uh, if it comes uh, in contact with certain uh, chemicals, uh, will it resist that or not? The question is always broader then yeah, just uh, make this part. And this is also uh, where we try to really envision some other problems, uh, especially in the OEM industry. So that is the original uh, equipment manufacturers. Uh, you have the typical uh, sort of life cycle of, of products. So think about it, if you make a car, there's a period in time where it becomes very popular and then after a while it becomes less popular and then it leaves the scene. And that's the same for all the components that are in there. At a certain point in time, you need to make small batches, then you have a very high series and then later on it uh, starts to uh, level off and then it basically retires. It's very important in these type of settings to really start thinking about, so how much do I need over the different stages in this life cycle? And how can I make sure that a product that is designed to be very efficient in series also can still be a service part for the 10 years after that? So at Eric's, we really try to figure out the problem of the customer. Customers approach us and they say, okay, this and that needs happening, or I have a problem, such and such. And we really try to understand uh, what the problem is they're facing in order to find the best possible technology to use to solve it. And you have to understand that, for example, each technology you want to use or introduce to tackle that problem actually is competing with the current system and with the current way of solving that. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you're looking at introducing 3D printing to have spare parts printed on demand, it's basically competing with stock inventory systems. Right. It might not be a technology in the sense of uh, a manufacturing technology it's competing with, but it might be an entirely different system and an entirely different value chain that it's competing with. You have to be very thoughtful about which opportunities do you want to tackle with this technology and where does it really stand out in comparison with the thing that you're substituting. I really like that idea that you bring up that any new solution is competing with the existing you know, paradigms for how this is solved. That is a challenge that additive manufacturing faces in general, coming into industries that have been around a long time and have very established protocols, processes. What has Eric's approach to additive manufacturing been over time? And what are some of the current interests? 10 years ago, we started using 3D printing for prototyping. First and foremost, with prototyping for rubber components. So making a rubber component and the mold can be up to 12 weeks for you to get the first concepts out of the mold. But with 3D printing, we could reduce that to two or three days. This allowed us to really co-engineer with, uh, with, with different clients and go through several iterations before actually putting uh, the mold down. The same happened on the injection molding on uh, plastic uh, parts, where we also started introducing that uh, a lot. And then uh, roughly yeah, four or five years ago, we really started thinking, oh, okay, so the, the technology is really maturing. We were seeing various different technologies coming to the market. A functional prototyping seemed to be possible or even like for light printing. So what could we do? 
And we approached uh, 3D printing both as an opportunity and as a possible uh, threat. We have 800,000 parts in our assortment. So what could be the first parts uh, that we could 3D print or what could be the first parts that somebody else decides to 3D print uh, cutting us out of the supply chain? So we did this whole investigation together with all the different product managers from the different departments. And we discovered that 3D printing could be a, a very big opportunity for us. And that's when we started investing more time and more effort into looking at the different techniques, looking at the different materials that are out there and really seeing how could we bring this technology up to the standard that we're used to. So for example, having the right certifications for the various industries, but also how can you make sure that it would be according to the right tolerances or mechanical or dynamic properties. This is uh, where we have been advancing our knowledge as well as um, advancing with clients together in co-engineering trajectories, trying to figure out how we could best utilize this technology uh, for them. And, and how does this fit into Eric's focus on the full life cycle of these parts? With 3D printing now, we are looking into going back and rethinking parts. When it's a new part, we do it immediately, where we already envision different manufacturing technologies along the life cycle so that you can 3D print it and it's a certified part. Then when you scale up, you can, for example, injection mold it. And then later on at the end of life, you can 3D print it again. And in that way, you basically make sure that nobody's left with a lot of residual stock or somebody has to do a last buy and then throw it all away. So you really make sure that the service level can remain high over the full life cycle of that product, but with the least amount of investment. That process makes perfect sense, the way you describe it. During that early stages, during prototyping, you are making series of you know iterated uh, ones of things. So you don't need injection molding. But then you go into production, you produce the parts that you need for a large deployed use. And then eventually you stop making batches of the size to make that make sense. Now, it sounds really clear, but I know it's a new approach that manufacturing is taking seriously. How new is that idea for manufacturing and how receptive is manufacturing to that idea? A lot of work needs to be done in order to make that possible. If you start from scratch, you have all the opportunities to do it, but there's a lot of parts out there that are at the end of their service life and where the pro problem is really imminent. The tricky part, however, is that if you look at a design and if you look at the choices they made in that design, a lot of the design as well as the material of choice is, is a summary. It's, it's like a conclusion of, of all these things that this part needs to do. Trying to reason back what were the original thoughts of the engineer? What are the original ideas on how strong this part has to be is very hard. This is already hard. And this is also in combination with how are you going to find these opportunities? Those opportunities only come to the surface when basically you're out of stock or when somebody is getting really scared because he has to do a last buy. How could you identify these upfront? We did a lot of data analysis uh, at Eric's. We have uh, ourselves over 800,000 uh, parts in stock. We have this huge pool of potential there. But uh, the tricky part is, is that if you look at what data was stored on parts by any company, it's mostly just how many you need, what the price is at a different bracket, and then a drawing. And that drawing is a flat drawing, so not a 3D design. And there might be some material on there. There might be some dimensions on there, but... 
it's not very in, in detail. So for a computer, for example, or a smart al algorithm to go over these data sets is very hard. For example, in the data set, the material is not known. So searching quickly for anything that's plastic becomes already a very hard thing to do. And what you don't want to do at the same time is to have to go through all the drawings because that's such a, a, a tedious process. You might not find any opportunities in there. This is the thing that if this type of lifecycle thinking is going to work for us as an industry, we basically have to start now with all the products that we make and to store all the data that uh, is needed and is required in order to manage those life cycles over the time. And then gradually you will see all these, well, let's say older parts retire. Um, perhaps they uh, will be re-engineered for 3D printing, but likely not. But right now, doing it in the right way is very important for us to see both in the scale up as well as in the uh, end of life. Eric's is making a strong case for why you need to plan for easy ways to produce replacement parts late in the parts life cycle. And that should influence the design of the part. What we always do when we make a part, we make sure that inside the part, we put a coding with our logo, but also the drawing number that is actually uh, there. And I think that what we'll start seeing is that the amount of post-processing uh, that needs to be done in order to make the part confirm with the right dimensions will get less and less with the technology being more mature. And the amount of customization will be more and more. So you will start seeing coding of parts in there so that you, for example, can have the code in there for uh, tra traceability reasons. And also, for example, what we put in is a lot of customers order parts with us through, uh, through EDI connection. So that's an uh, uh, electronic connection to our SAP or a ERP system. And what we actively do is that we saw that one of the biggest pains of customers is actually that they can't find what the part is. Yeah. So they have a part in their hand which just broke down and they have no clue what it is and where to order it. By putting our code immediately in the part, they can just go to their SAP system mm -hmm. and then order it. And within three minutes, they know when they will have it made. These are the things that we will start seeing Less post-processing needs, and at the same time, there will be more customization happening in the parts as well. Would this be a good opportunity to talk about how Eric's approaches materials? So Eric prides itself really in understanding not only the parts that we make, but also the materials it's made of. We have our own material labs where we develop rubber compounds. We know exactly what the properties are and which industries we can use it in. This is the same that uh, we do on the plastic side. And this is something that we're also developing on the 3D printing side so that you really understand the dynamics of the material and, and how you can utilize it to get to the best results. So for additive materials in specific, how do you talk about and evaluate selecting and developing materials for needs? Like what is that sort of conversation and development like? Yeah, so materials is a very interesting field in additive manufacturing because it brings back companies to the question, why do we use a certain material? For example, why do you use aluminum or why do you use stainless steel? So it has to do with strength. It can have to do with dynamic strength, or it can have to do with that it's used in a certain environment in which certain abrasive materials are, are there uh, that could impact the material. So when it comes to uh, materials, we often get the question, so what materials can you print? And then we always respond to them saying, look, there's thousands of materials out there, 
that we need to really understand what are the most commonly used materials in your industry? What are the properties? Why are they being used? And what would be the equivalent in 3D printing? This is really how we try to take them on a journey to really show them it's not necessarily what you can print, but it's really about how you apply materials together with the design and the capabilities of 3D printing to come to a new sort of design or a new sort of capability. What do you think will be required for more in-use parts and production roles to come to AM technologies in your field? Yeah, I think it has to do again with the building blocks that we're seeing. Especially in some industries, materials just need to comply with the regulations and standards. If you don't comply, it is basically something nice and interesting, but it's not according to the rules. People might be very hesitant and start to question uh, the legitimacy of the, the technology in that sense. In other industries, it's it's not, not so much a problem. But there, for example, you have to really find a problem that's worth tackling. So, for example, in the agriculture industry, 3D printing would not come into any norms and standard issues. Mm. However, at the same time, the machines have to be very sturdy, have to be very rugged. And 3D printing often doesn't have the end properties yet that, for example, steel would. You have to really start searching for those cracks in the walls where basically either the problem is big enough, like in aviation, in terms of cost saving on weight, which is such a big driver that it doesn't matter anymore what investments you have to do into the 3D printing part or the uh, certification aspect of it. Or you have to find the scale, yeah, so that you have all the preconditions met. For example, having materials that are all certified, and then all of a sudden you can uh, deliver mass customization to the medical field or braces or other objects that might have uh, many different shapes and forms. One of the important parts about materials also is that many of the existing materials or, for example, uh, materials that are used in CNC, we know all the properties and we can easily say uh, what are the mechanical or dynamic properties of the end part. With 3D printing, a lot of times we don't know yet how strong the layer adhesion is or how strong the end part will be. So a lot of testing and trial and error will be needed in order to come to simple rules of thumb saying, for example, if I design this part, the the dynamic properties will be so much percentage of the mechanical properties. These rules of thumb will be very needed for engineers to quickly assess which technology is most useful in a certain case, making it possible to start using it quicker and having it really top of mind when you're designing a part for production. This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast. This is a critical time for industry to adopt 3D printing, stabilizing and strengthening this field in the new global economy. Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs, machines and teams all across the world that have remained open and fully operational even during these complicated times. Enjoy Talking Additive? We'd appreciate it if you would subscribe and post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. Let's return now to Job van de Sande from Eric's. I think I should talk a bit on the on our clean manufacturing unit. If it comes to making jigs and fixtures, also end parts, we've been focused a lot on the, the food and pharma market. We already had a lot of materials and capabilities in that industry from traditional manufacturing technologies such as CNC. But of course, this is completely different with 3D printing. You have to go through uh, another process of making sure that it's conform FDA 
or conform EC 1935, which is the European equivalent for food safety. One of the very important things in that is that you start to understand the materials that you're using. We knew how we could make food safe printing possible from a material point of view as well as from a machine point of view. So we went through with a number of materials, we went through making sure that we understood all the steps and where it inter interacted with anything within the chain, making sure that this whole chain would be traceable so that if there would be anything out in the field in the future, you could trace it back all the way to the source. The second thing we did is recently we brought online a very big new clean manufacturing facility in, in Alkmaar in the Netherlands. At the top floor, we have a, a clean room where we can uh, clean parts to a very uh, high level. And downstairs, we already are producing in a clean manner. We basically go with the philosophy, if you don't make it dirty, you don't have to clean it. So by making the manufacturing as clean as possible, we, we managed to already get to a very high level of cleanliness. Our 3D printers are now hosted in that clean uh, environment. So combining that environment as well as all the knowledge on the materials, as well as the knowledge on the printers, we are now able to print a number of materials according to EC1935 food safe standards in the Netherlands. And apart from that, we're also currently looking at extending that towards pharma or medical aid types of norms and standards, making sure that you can really outsource printing for these types of markets to us. You covered parts of this in the Ultimaker story. Would you define what a, what a clean facility is for listeners? Cleanliness from a food safe perspective has to do with good manufacturing practices. It basically means that on a number of things that happen within your facility, you need to have protocols. For example, how you clean the environment, what clothes you wear, what tools you use to touch the materials, how you store materials, etc. So you have to have that all written down and be audited and then also to keep that at a certain level over time. This combined with the fact that you might use materials that are also food safe, as well as with that you understand your machines and that the environment it's in has, for example, a high grade of ventilation with filtering, make sure that there is a very small chance on any contamination. And that is really the requirement for food safe printing, that there can not be any contamination right. of the parts through any way. Let's dive into specifically the additive transformation of manufacturing. And let's look at the manufacturing process aids, et cetera, that Eric's has been exploring in such interesting ways. My first question is, what roles do you see for FFF specifically in manufacturing processes? And I'm thinking in terms of today, but feel free to extend that uh, on into uh, the future. When you asked anybody at Eric's, what are we going to make with, uh, with 3D printing? We would say prototyping or end parts, or somebody would have this revolutionary idea to make a design for AM. And then we basically discovered this, uh, this untapped potential if it comes to jigs and fixtures. When you go to the job floor or when you are in a manufacturing environment, you will notice that there's a lot of small tweaks that can be done. This could be in terms of optimizing production. This could be in terms of optimizing quality by making welding tools. It could be making machines safer, making a customized safety shields. And so what we started seeing was that actually one of the first and, and biggest potentials was using jigs and fixtures. 
a lot of our customers, but also people at Eric's would say, yeah, great ideas, but why didn't you do it in the past? So this, of course, is a very good question, because if you have all these ideas, why don't you make them? You could have made them for metal as well. And then when we started asking it, we noticed that it would take a lot of lead time to get these parts. And by the time that they got the part, it was already not top of mind anymore. Moreover, oh yeah, it still needed to be tweaked because it wasn't perfect either. And that basically led to people going back to their day-to-day business and forgetting about these great ideas. What we noticed with 3D printing was that it, for us, if you combine it with a side scan, you would go with a few guys from the 3D printing team to the to the manufacturing units and ask them, so is there any opportunities here for improvements? Very Often people would be skeptical at first, but then when you started to make those first examples, it started to hit home for them. They would start understanding what the capabilities were and they started noticing that we could uh, basically supply them within one or two days with a first concept. And that really helped us to get adoption amongst a, a big group of people that saw the potential. As a result, uh, we now often have that when we walk through the shop floor or the ma- near the manufacturing area, the guys or uh, ladies there, they will basically ask us, oh, can you please help us make a small jigsaw fixture here or there? And and in that way, it, we thought uh, we could really uh, start saving a lot of money by avoiding mistakes and uh, helping with assembly or helping with quality checking. You've made some pretty strong cases for using additive manufacturing for jigs, fixtures, and tools. So why is it that jigs, fixtures, and tools are such a great candidate for AM? What is it about the process and use that really you think makes sense, maybe from a business perspective as well? So often they're overlooked. So there's a lot of potential there. The first one is that jigs and fixtures, they're easy to make and they bring immediate value. So they're not something that has indirect value. Now it really brings value to the table in an instant. So the second thing that's really great about jigs and fixtures and making them with 3D printing is that for jigs and fixtures to work, you need to iterate a few times. And that's something that definitely works well with 3D printing. So I can't recall any of the jigs and fixtures that we made that didn't take us two or three times to iterate. Uh, Sometimes it's even more. So that, of course, uh, is something that you would have never done if it was made of metal and you had to outsource it uh, to an external party and then going through iterations of three times three weeks and with a lot of money. So that making jigs and fixtures on a 3D printer in-house definitely works very well. And I think the third thing is that from an engineering perspective, the technology is very approachable. So you could make very good jigs and fixtures using very simple CAD software. So you don't have to be a full expert on SolidWorks in order to make a jigs and fixture. This means that uh, anybody who is doing this at home as a sort of a hobby or, or even had some formal education in it, they can really sit behind even a simple computer and make parts and then immediately send it to the printer. The, the ability to adopt and the ability to start on it is very high. So you will see a lot of ideas actually materialize as a result. What are some of the applications that you've noticed are are really good candidates for being supported better by additive manufacturing than traditional methods? So one of the interesting examples that we have at Eric's uh, that worked really well for us is actually welding tools. When you are uh, welding parts or uh, especially tubing, it's important that the angle or how it's oriented is immediately good. 
And we thought if we're going to make jigs and fixtures uh, with FFF using PLA or anything else, they will melt. So what we did was actually we combined different 3D printing technologies with some yeah, very uh, high resolution heat resistant materials, as well as the more structural nylons to make a very sturdy overall jig. And this is what we combined. And then in the end, we were able to really make some very interesting welding tools to support both the, the robots, but also the more manual uh, welding processes. And the good part about it is that because they keep the, the parts in place, the amount of rework has dropped significantly. Mm. Uh, and you can basically uh, spot weld the tubing in place. You see it pokey as they say, with Lean Six Sigma. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's only one way of assembling this part before you start welding. And uh, yeah, that really helps. And also very important with 3D printing is that on those parts, you can, of course, print instructions. You can say where you have to put the welds, pointing it out with arrows. You can put the drawing on it so uh, that, for example, the tool has the same number as on the production order. And in that way, you can really build in many different safeguards that make sure that you have it immediately according to the quality specifications rather than that the quality department has to tell you in hindsight that something went wrong. And and this really helps the people in production focus on making very high quality parts. Another example of jigs and fixtures is actually transportation tools. So we make very complex tubing which you can compare, for example, with the hydraulic pressure hoses that are underneath trucks and cars that would run the the brake fluid. We make these also in miniature version or with very thin tubes for for different markets. Uh, These tubings could have up to 20 welds. So making the welds perfect is very important. But then also because they're so fragile, how do you transport them across the globe to another site far away for there to be assembled in the machines? So here's an interesting part. So what we've done is that we said, okay, so we have to have a sturdy background and then it needs to be completely customized to that uh, tubing. So what we did is we made a steel uh, plating that was very sturdy and then introduced a lot of different holes in which we could make little uh, attachment points for 3D printed plastic parts that would connect uh, with the tubing. And we did a lot of experimentation on uh, to connect them very strongly without damaging any of the metal uh, tubing. And here the interesting thing was that we eventually had to come up with up to 20 connection points. So 20 small little connectors that would have to be installed on the metal plate and then the, the tubing had to be installed on top of that. So how are you going to do that? How are you going to make sure that they put them in the right place? We numbered all the little jigs and we also numbered them in the metal plate. We used the 3D printing process to make it even better and better. First we thought, okay, then we will print 20 of the number one, then 20 of the number two, then 20 of the number three. And in the end we thought, okay, yeah, so then uh, we also have to make a little bags with all the, with part one to 20 in there. So that's a lot of uh, work. But of course, 3D printing, you can also just print number one to 20 on the same production batch. So we ended up making um, um, them all be connected to each other with uh, little cutaways so that you would literally make the 20 little jigs in one, in one production run of eight hours, and then you could put them in a plastic bag. And then if they assembled it on the metal plating, it simply would be just grabbing the bag and then cutting away uh, each of the little jigs one at a time. Nice. It was a very interesting project where we experimented a lot of different materials and uh, making sure it was very strong and, and it worked. So yeah, 
a kit of parts ready to go. Just tear off the one you need. It's a great image. So what roles do you see for additive manufacturing within safety tools? Uh, you had mentioned Pokioki. I would love to hear the sort of range of safety tools that you're really thinking about. You might be surprised how many opportunities there are to actually make things safer. Not because it's unsafe or that you would not be allowed to, to work otherwise, but just because you can actually make it even better than that. This could be, for example, safety tools with uh, safeguards holding back. We had, for example, a foil roll and that because of these safety tools, now you could change with your hands free so that you never have the chances of it falling on you. Uh, you could think about safety tools where there might be heated elements that you could uh, screen off. Yeah, you can also think about very simple logout and tagout tools. Machines in the past 20, 30 years, they might not have gone through formal uh, certification. Uh, one of the things that might be now mandatory is that uh, if you shut it down or you do maintenance, that it has to be able to be locked out and tagged out. By adding this capability, where it is, for example, making sure that uh, doors can't be opened or making sure, for example, a plug can't be plugged into a, an outlet anymore, that these are the simple ways how you can make such a machine safe again. So you don't have to discard of a machine of several thousands of euros. You just make a safeguard that you can't plug in uh, when it's under repair. And and these are the simple things where you can really start thinking out of the box in terms of making safety um, better. At Ultimaker, we've been hearing a lot about safety opportunities, everything from people making on the fly, like Pokioki tools that just, it speeds up processes as well as protecting for specific use. We hear about ergonomics and we hear about, yeah, the lockout tagout tools and and even just signs and, and notices around locations, things that made sense to us. But I think initially as an OEM you know, machine provider, we thought, oh, wouldn't those things usually be easy to get because all the parts and machines are standard? And then what we were hearing back from customers like, no, 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 you're, you're missing this. Mm -hmm. It's... Uh, Every single factory, every line, every floor, it has unique machines and solutions. It's actually annoying to get the full range of safety that you need. Yeah. So this is a, a way to customize. But, well, when did you start seeing this as being a good option? And, and how are you seeing adoption going in this area? Yes, I think within any company that has to go through a certification with terms of uh, safety, you will also have a safety department and across the company, you will have safety cards or under a warning system. We have a digital system in which we input any near misses that we have or any things that might be up for improvement. And that's actually a very big source of, of information and potential to make these types of jigs and fixtures. I can remember a safety tool which we made where it wasn't necessarily needed, but just some wires were in the way, which made a process rather tedious. And we just engineered some clippings, making sure that you can really have a very clean desk to work on and everything was, was put away. Other type of safety tools are also in terms of uh, how you stow away different equipment. And this you can really customize for the equipment that you need. These are normally, you can't buy them in the market. I know it's just a subset of what you're talking about, but would you be willing to define pokeyoke? Pokeyoke basically is the Japanese term used a lot in lean manufacturing. Pokey means, means mistake or unwanted mistake. And yoke means to prevent. 
So by having uh, Okioki applied in your processes, you basically are uh, preventing any unwanted mistakes to happen. And typical examples from the past were uh, back in the days when we had USB version number one, you could only put it in one way into the socket of your laptop. Yeah, there's many of these examples uh, out there also in a manufacturing uh, environment where, for example, you can only assemble a certain uh, product in a certain way, making sure that the outlets are all on the right side, for example. That's a great and efficient definition. I appreciate it. We, we've also talked about lotto solutions. So logout, tagout, or logout, tagout, tryout, better known as Lodoto, is actually a, a safety precaution in which if you're an industry, for example, going to service a certain machine, you make sure that it is impossible to turn it on. So you lock it out and you tag it out. So you put a tag on it saying like this machine is uh, going to be repaired. Do not switch this plug on. For example, if you are far away from that machine and the tagging out happens somewhere among the fuses. Uh, and then also try out is that uh, you make sure that actually uh, it's impossible to tag it in again. And that makes sure even if you are far away from the machine, that it's impossible to switch it on, causing any accidents as a result. If right now you're applying a lot of this in exciting ways to jigs, fixtures, and tooling, safety opportunities, what do you expect that the industry will be tackling soon that will be become easier than it is now? In terms of where I see the industry right now, I think in certain market segments, it's still in its infancy, but you see it gradually develop mm. and you definitely see all the boxes being checked. So you see that the materials are improving, they get certification on the materials. We start to understand the total process of uh, materials and the interaction with the manufacturing. We start to understand gradually the mechanical properties and the dynamic properties that come out of the printer and how consistent that is and repeatable. And these are all the building blocks that we need in order to become really at the industry standard in terms of printing. Unfortunately for any emerging technology, of course, is that it's compared to uh, what it's trying to replace. So if you're going to do like for like, it will definitely be compared to injection molding or CNC. When it comes to new properties like internal structures, of course, you can't compare it with anything else. But there, your skill level and understanding of the technology has to be so high that it is very hard to see upfront the applicability of the technology. From a maturity perspective on the material development, on the machine development, you also see that we're getting to a point where you have the maturity level amongst the engineers, where they start to really see the possibilities and where, it, where the technology has its unique uh, properties. And I think that's very important for us to start seeing more and more adoption. Would you share with Talking Additive your sense of where we are in the additive transformation of manufacturing now? So Erix is engaged also in a lot of fundamental research together, for example, with the Free University of Amsterdam into looking how this ecosystem is evolving, both from the 3D print uh, spectrum, but also if you look at it from the different industry segments. And one thing that we've done is that we uh, try to really understand what are the different problems that are there within different industry segments and how do they cope with that uh, these days. So for example, the problem might be that their time to market is too long or that they might have a spare part problem or that they don't have the capabilities within their company if it comes to, for example, having engineers on hand that can actually make customized parts. What really struck us is that you see a lot of differences between different industries. Uh, 
So one industry might have a lot of engineers on hand that can actually fix it and would also be able to operate 3D printers and other industries might completely not have that. The second thing that really struck us was that also it depends really who you speak to. So if you speak to the supply chain managers or procurement managers, they really say our industry has an issue with spare parts or with supply chain issues. Mm -hmm. But then when from the same company, you would start talking to the engineer, they actually say, no, it's the time to market or it's actually the capabilities that is the issue. So there's a lot of differences between industries, but also within industries. So you could have the same type of company having a lot of engineers on hand or not at all. One of the most important things to understand is also the context you're working in. Do they actually have the engineers on hand uh, in which you can co-engineer and make those 3D printed parts? Do they have a spare part problem? But also, do they have all the data on hand Mm. that you need in order to start assessing what are the most viable opportunities to, for example, put in a digital warehouse. There's a lot of these contextual aspects Mm -hmm. or industry characteristics that play into getting a successful adoption of this technology. This is why we're also trying to really investigate and see what are the companies that are ahead of the curve and for what reasons we're putting a lot of effort in those so that we can really co-engineer with those companies. How widely has FFF been adopted and what ways do you see this transforming over the years to be ready for future possibilities? I think personally that the industry right now is not using its full potential yet. Uh, I think we're still in the infancy of, uh, of, of adoption and you see big differences in how far various industries are along the curve. Eric sells a lot of products to different industries. And this is also why we can really see the difference between uh, various industries. FFF technology is rapidly growing in terms of being applicable uh, to industry applications. And what we're seeing now is that FFF printing used to be discarded as inferior, but now it leaps forward, especially, for example, the way these layers are deposited has become so uh, precise that Problems with adhesion are starting to disappear. Problems with surface finish is starting to disappear. And this has really led to much more adoption. You see differences in industries, but I think that from now onwards, we'll see much more adoption going forward, especially in the area of jigs and fixtures, for example, in food, as well as in pharma and other industries. Over the last two years, we we experimented a lot with various ways how to engage with this technology ourselves, but also to make sure that both our customers and ourselves speak the same additive language. We've noticed that it's very important to be on the same page in terms of what are the capabilities of of this technology and how to apply it in a good way. So we experimented with giving trainings, looking at, for example, doing side scans, also looking at co-engineering trajectories or the design for AM. What we've noticed is that side scans and really making it tangible uh, in combination with co-engineering, so really digging into a very customer-specific problem, actually worked best to get on the same page and to really get the point across on how to apply this technology. Because one of the things that we learned is that the great feature of 3D printing is the tangible aspect. So people tend to react very differently to ideas and concepts or objects. Seeing you design uh, being built and seeing it uh, being structured on a machine, uh, seeing the internal structure, seeing how it's being printed drives the understanding of what this technology is capable of and really sparks new ideas. Often they already know 3D printing, but once they really get to see it and feel the materials and 
see the applications, that's when they really start being excited and find a very interesting technology to think on new ideas. Thank you very much for joining Talking Additive today. Your insights are really helpful. Thank you for explaining Eric's approach to the industry and for sharing some of your own research. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Joe van de Sande from Eric's. We hope that you have enjoyed our 13th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. To learn more, visit erics.com to find sites within your territory or read the customer success story titled Eric's Working Clean, Certified, and In Control with 3D Printing at Ultimaker.com within the Learn section. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag TalkingAdditive, all one word. In two weeks, we will return with episode 14, featuring Steve Serpy from Arkema. Arkema offers solutions for high-performance materials suited to resist harsh chemicals, high temperatures, and UV exposure, opening up new 3D-printed applications in automotive, industrial, and aerospace markets. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at TalkingAdditive.com. Thanks again to Yo van de Sande and the Eric's Additive team for joining us for this episode. Our series producer is Hanna Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, music and episode sound mix by Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.